During the lifetime of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that the Lord asked many questions, but many questions were asked of the Lord or to the Lord. But I want to look at the last question that anyone ever asked the Lord Jesus Christ. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We find Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. This question was asked by a group of people called Sadducees. Now, when you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's going to be hard to really understand a lot of things if you're not familiar with the groups that you're going to read about. You're going to read about Gentiles. You're going to read about Jews. You're going to read about Samaritans. You're going to read about Pharisees, chiefs, priests, scribes, elders, and Sadducees. So when you're reading a passage like we're going to address this morning, it's important for us to know something about who the Sadducees were. Now the Sadducees was a religious group, religious sect in that day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were in opposition for a great deal against the Pharisees. Now most people have heard the name Pharisee used many, many, many times. And we use it sometimes in everyday conversation. Somebody might say, well, so-and-so, he's pretty pharisaical. So-and-so, he acts like a Pharisee. But I've never heard anybody, I don't believe I've ever heard anybody say that so-and-so is like a Sadducee. He, you know, he's Sadduceeical. <laughs> but the Sadducees were small by comparison to the Pharisees, but nevertheless, they were very influential during the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we find where the Pharisees are mentioned 14 times in the New Testament. And we find where the Pharisees are mentioned 87 times. So the Pharisees, again, are recorded far more times than the Sadducees. Six times we find where the Pharisees and Sadducees are mentioned together. For example, in the book of Matthew chapter 3, we find where John the Baptist is baptizing people in the River Jordan. And coming to his baptism was a lot, a multitude of people. And he was baptizing a lot of people at the time. But we're told Pharisees and Sadducees, they're grouped together here, they're grouped together six times, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to his baptism. But John refused to baptize any of them. And he said unto them, O generation of vipers, that's what he called them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit, therefore meet for repentance. If you want me to baptize you, you're going to have to show some evidences of grace. You're going to have to show me some evidence that you belong to the Lord, that you're one of his children, just because, not because you are a Pharisee or a Sadducee. So he didn't baptize them, and he called them generation of viper. That's a pretty serious charge, isn't it? In Matthew 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees come to the Lord asking for a sign. And the Lord says, you look up into the sky when it's red and lowering, and you say, okay, it's, it's going to be rainy. Or you look in the sky, and you just see it, it red, and you say, it's going to be a fair day. He says, ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And no sign shall be given thee except the sign of Jonah being the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Now, Jonah was a type of Christ in this regard. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, and the Lord is going to spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Two different times the Lord brings us to our attention. Once back in Matthew chapter 12. So the Lord calls him a wicked and adulterous generation. He then, a few verses later, will charge his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now when you study leaven in the Bible, 
you know, generally speaking, it's a picture of sin. It's a picture of that which is corrupt. He says the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is corrupt. And he warned his disciples about listening to these two groups of people. We come to the book of Acts chapter 4. And you find where the Sadducees joined with the chief priests and elders in persecuting two apostles in the name of Peter and John. In Acts 23, you'll find they were with the Pharisees and part of the Sanhedrin council. The Sadducees, most of them were wealthy and highly educated in the things of men. And we find that they held important positions oftentimes in the Jewish religious circle. In Acts 23, you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees in their persecution of the Apostle Paul. They made up part of the, what we call the Sanhedrin Council. That was the highest council among the Jewish people in that day. And the Apostle Paul, to show how kind of clever he was, see, he's a prisoner right now. And when he saw some were Pharisees and some were Sadducees, he knew that they differed on major points. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Give them credit for that. Sadducees did not. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Sadducees did not believe in angels. Sadducees did not believe in the spirit. That's three things that Pharisees believed. Sadducees didn't, and there was constant button of heads. But it's also interesting, when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ, those Pharisees and Sadducees allied together. Pilate and Herod did that. Pilate and Herod were enmity against one another until Christ came along. And then when Pilate allowed Christ to go into the jurisdiction of Herod so Herod could see some miracle, we find where it says, after that point, Herod <laughs> and uh, Pilate became friends. And I liken to the political theater we have in the United States. In the primary, whether it's Democrat or Republican, they go at each other tooth and nail, Right? But once a candidate's been selected by the party, all of a sudden he's the greatest thing to come along since sliced bread. I mean, all those people saying all those bad things about him when they were trying to get the nomination, now all of a sudden they're all supportive. <laughs> they're all behind them. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's the way it was with Herod and Pilate. That's the way it was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And when Paul saw that, here's what Paul said. He knew the difference. Paul said, I am a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. And when he said that, there was dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Paul deflected everything away from him over on them. And the next thing you know, the Pharisees arose up and said, if an angel or a spirit has spoken to this man, let us not fight against God. And Paul was spared and delivered. Now notice what they said, if a spirit, right, or an angel, which the Sadducees did not believe in, the Pharisees knew that. So that's what they said. That's the last time that the Pharisees and Sadducees are grouped together. So we come over here to, again, we can choose Matthew, Mark, or Luke, but we'll say a little something from all three of these gospel writers. You know, the gospel writers oftentimes wrote about the same thing, and they said the same thing, but they said the same thing in different ways. <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying? They would say the same thing. They never contradicted one another, but sometimes they said it in different ways, different words, different expressions. So the Sadducees come to the Lord Jesus Christ with this question. And when you read Matthew, Mark, or Luke, it'll all three will start off this way. And the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, came to the Lord and asked the question. And they presented him a hypothetical situation. It's possible this could actually be a true situation, but more than likely, this is probably 
hypothetical. And most hypothetical questions or situations or scenarios people present on the surface look like this almost perfect, but rarely are they ever. So they present this hypothetical situation to the Lord Jesus Christ. They said, Moses, I like the way Mark starts it off, Moses has written unto us. Now the Sadducees believe very, very strongly in the first five books of the Bible that's called the books of Moses. The books of Moses. Now they're going to say this, the Moses has spoken unto us, and they're going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Moses has spoken unto us, and the Sadducees wanted everything in black and white. It had to be taught very clearly, or they would not accept it. They would reject it. And so they did not think that the resurrection was taught clearly in the Old Testament. But it wasn't taught nearly as often as it is in the New Testament. And we do have a more clear picture in the New Testament. I can assure you it was preached in the Old. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he began like this. He said, Moreover, brother, I declare unto you the gospel, wherein you have received, wherein you stand, whereby you shall be saved, if you keep in memory what I preached to you. Remembering, first of all, how I preached to you according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. Now he's talking Old Testament scriptures when he says that. He says, The Old Testament scriptures teach Christ died for our sins. Go to Isaiah chapter 53 in particular. Then he says, Also, we have preached unto you how Christ was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So here he's teaching the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. So the Sadducee says, Moses has wrote unto us concerning this particular situation. Now, we go into Deuteronomy chapter 25, and here's what they're talking about. In Matthew, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 25, we find where the law of God was this. If you had brethren in a family... And here's a brother who's married, and his wife has no children by him, and he dies. Then his brother, one of his brothers, was to take her to wife. She was not to be married again to a stranger. She was to marry to one of his brothers. And the reason for this is that it might maintain the name of this family and their inheritance. It was important to build up the name and inheritance of different families. So this is the purpose of it. And he says she, her husband died, so she married a brother. That's her second marriage. And then he died, and she married the third one. And he died, and she married the fourth one. Now I'm just going to stop here and ask you a question. If I'm brother number four, and she's done buried brother one, two, and three, I'm going to be a little reluctant, I think, to be number four. But number four took her, and he died. If I'm brother number five, I think I'm going to do the same, wouldn't you? She's done buried four. I'm going to be reluctant to be number five. And number five took her. Number six took her. Number seven took her. I'll, I'll say this abodes well with this family of brothers. They was willing to keep God's law. So she married seven different men, all brothers. Now, I know a family where three brothers married three sisters, and that's quite an interesting situation when it comes to cousins and double cousins and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, she's married seven different men and has no child but any of those seven. That's why she went all the way to number seven. Now, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25 just for a minute because a brother could refuse, but here's what would happen if he refused to do it. If he refused to take the wife of his brother in order to 
you know, uphold his name and build his family, build his house. Then he was to advertise it before the elders, and the widow woman was to come before witnesses, the elders, and she was to pull his shoe off his foot and spit in his face and say, let this be done to the man who will not honor his brother's name. So if he was willing to suffer reproach, he didn't have to marry her. So I guess you got to figure out which is worse, suffer reproach or die, right? I mean, she buried seven of them. <laughs> and then it says, and last of all, she died. Now you can see this when you study the book of Ruth. Go to Ruth chapter 4. When you get to chapter 4, there's a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz has now decided he wants to marry Ruth. Mar Ruth was a Moabite. Now, if you're familiar with the story, we're not going to go back and bring everybody up to date on this. We're in chapter 4, four chapters in Ruth. But before Boaz can marry Ruth, there's a, a person, another man, that was closer, uh, you know, as far as being able to redeem than Boaz was, as far as kinship. So he meets in the gate of the city with the elders, and the man comes along, he stops him, and tells him that, you know, he has first opportunity to marry Ruth. And in the beginning, he says, oh, I'll, I'll do it. He said, well, if you marry Ruth, you also got to, you know, remember that uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, uh, had two sons, and you're going to have to take care of their situation as well. And then he says, well, he says, I, he says, I can't do this unless I mar my own inheritance. So that put him out of the way, and Boaz took over. And they went down there to the gate of the city, and to confirm all things, he took his shoe off as a testimony and witness. This became known as the house of the man with the loose shoe. So this is what the Sadducees are bringing to the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come over here again and read what the, the account of all this. They want to know in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Is she going to be the first man's wife? She's going to be the wife of the one who was the richest, maybe the one who was the best looking, <laughs> the oldest, the kindest. I mean, on what basis are you going to have here to where she's going to be the wife of one of these men? They're trying to make this look like it'd be absurd to believe there's going to be a resurrection when this woman would have seven husbands in this life and now in heaven, whose husband is she going to have? She can't have all seven of them. She didn't have all seven of these at one time. She had them at separate times. So in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to have? That's the question. The question wasn't a sincere question. It was, a title, it was designed to ensnare the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a theological question. It's a question about eternity. And there are legitimate questions in the Bible about eternity. What did rich young ruler, what was his question when he came to the Lord? He says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That was a question about eternity. You see billboards going down the highway. Are you prepared to meet God? When you die, you will meet God. Are you prepared to do that? It's a question about eternity. Now, I know what they're saying in all that. They're trying to scare people into life. <laughs> I'm glad no old Baptist ever put a sign up like that. We don't have a sign. We have a sign out here, but you'll never read anything like that on that sign, right? Because we know that's not how things take place. So whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? The Lord responds. He says, ye do err. 
That's the first thing he tells them. He says, you're in error on this point. You do error not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Two things they did not know. They did not know the scriptures, although the Sadducees thought themselves to be very smart when it came to the scriptures, not so much. I like to watch Jeopardy a lot. I like to compete, I always lose. But anyway, I still like to watch it a lot. See, I mean, I can get right. But I love the Bible categories. And I've noticed the, the people, who, the contestants, always make that the last category they choose from. <laughs> they study everything in the world but the Bible. You know, and, and some of the easiest questions in there, of course, are any question is easy if you know the answer. Right? If you know the answer, oh, that's an easy one. Yeah, it is if you know the answer. If you don't know the answer, it's a hard question. Well, sometimes you'll find somebody that apparently went to church when they grew up and maybe go to church now, and they do fairly well. But usually it's the last category that they'll, they'll ask out of. The Lord said, you do error. Now, when you err, it's used because we don't know the Scriptures. Notice the importance of this, how they're connected. You do err not knowing the Scriptures. The Scriptures will enable you not to err. Now, to live in error in mind or in action or behavior is a serious matter. James 1.16, James says, Brethren, do not err. We come to the last verses of James chapter 5. And he says here, If any of you do err from the truth, and another convert him, let him know that he which convert the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sin. Now that's just kind of a general statement. If any do err from the truth, the truth of what? He doesn't say. Whatever it is, the truth will always make you free. Maybe it's the truth of doctrine. Maybe it's the truth of morality. Maybe it's the truth of how you live, how you walk, how you worship, etc., etc. But if any of you do err from the truth, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall do what? Shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sin. You see the seriousness of error here? Whatever the error is, there's death associated with it. If you're not converted from the sin of your way or the error of your way, according to James here, you're going to experience some kind of death. The word death means separation. You're going to be separated from family, separated from the church. You're going to be separated from the fellowship of God. You're going to be separated perhaps from your own life. A lot of people have died in this world because they erred from the truth of some, in some category. So I'd say that's pretty important. We'll look in Hebrews chapter 3. And we have an account in Hebrews chapter 3 about the children of Israel's experience when they wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Now remember, they've been delivered totally and completely out of Egyptian bondage and captivity across the Red Sea. And they sent out spies to spy out the land of Canaan, sent out 12. They spent 40 days over there, and they came back and 10 of those 12 spies. They all came back with the same report from the standpoint that the land is a land of hills and valleys, a fruitful land, a plentiful land, a rich land, a fertile land. And they all said there was fortified cities, even Joshua and Caleb. But there's giants in the land. They, even they admitted that. But ten of the spies said, we be not able to take the land. The other two says, we be well able. Some's walking by faith, some's walking by sight. The nation of Israel listened to those walking by sight, run those walking by faith. And the Lord judged them. And he gave them one year for every day. The spies spied out in the land of Canaan. So they spied it out 40 days. He's going to give them 40 years to wander in the wilderness. But over here in Hebrews 3.10, here's what it says. 
says the Lord was very displeased with them because they erred in their heart. I'd say that was a pretty serious error, wouldn't you? He caused them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And everybody from 20 years old and older that wandered in the wilderness, they perished and died in the wilderness. Un those under 20 and all the offspring that was born in that 40 years, God brought all them across Jordan's river and into the land of Canaan. In spite of what they said, they said, you brought us out here for our children to perish in this wilderness. Well, the children didn't perish. They did, but the children did not. Since they erred where? They erred in the heart. You can err right here. You can err right here. Now, over here in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, I think about verse 16, you're going to find where Isaiah says, the leaders of my people do cause them to err. And he says, those that follow after them shall be destroyed. I'd say that's a pretty serious matter of erring there, wouldn't you? They're, they're destroyed, but why? Because the leaders of my people cause them to err. Jeremiah reinforces this idea. He speaks about the false prophets who misled God's people and caused them to go into bondage and captivity and caused them to be destroyed by the sword and pestilence and various other things. So to err is a very serious business. He says, ye do error. Over in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, there's a man by the name of Philetus and one by the name of Hymenaeus. And they were teaching that the resurrection is past already and greatly erred from the truth. And it says, Their word doth eat like a canker, and the word canker means gangrene. He says, Their word, their word to the spirituality of God's children, because it says they have overthrown the faith of some, it's just like you getting gangrene and losing a hand, losing an arm, a foot, or a leg. That's a pretty serious picture, isn't it? So to err is very, very serious. We don't want to err, do we? We don't want to err in doctrine. We don't want to err in the worship service of the Lord. We don't want to err in the truth of God's word, whatever it might be. We want to be right on target. We want to be right there. Somebody said the other day, uh, this church I know about, this group had joined, and uh, there was a matter of the baptism. He said, well, they believe almost what we believe. <laughs> They're close. <laughs> well, being close and almost ain't being the same. The last time I looked at the definition of the word same and the word almost, they're different. And the word same and the word close, these words are different. They're not the same. <laughs> you're either the same or you're not the same. One way or the other, it ain't a matter of being close, you see. So we don't want to err. We want to be right on the mark. We want to meet the standards, the very best of our God-given ability. So these Sadducees present this hypothetical scenario to try to show the absurdity of the resurrection. Then this woman would have to... <laughs> make some kind of choice when she got to heaven, you know, who her husband's going to be. And remember, they do not believe in the resurrection, yet they've asked this resurrection question, not out of sincerity, not out of trying to learn something, but trying to ensnare and trip up the Lord Jesus Christ. But as always, Christ answered them with divine wisdom. Remember, this chapter starts off with a question of the Pharisees. To the Lord Jesus Christ, do you pay tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, this looks like they've got him. See, they're under the Roman Empire. 
If he says you pay tribute to Caesar, then all his followers are not going to like that because they didn't like being under Caesar. They didn't like being under the Roman Empire. They didn't like paying taxes. They didn't like any of that. If Christ says, oh, yes, we pay tribute to Caesar, that's not going to be good. If he says, no, we do not pay tribute to Caesar, then he's in trouble with the Roman Empire, the Roman government. So I didn't Christ answer. Christ said, bring me a coin. They brought him a coin. He says, whose superscription is on this? In other words, whose image is on this coin? They said, Caesar. The Lord then says, well, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. He answered with divine wisdom. They didn't know what to do with that. See, that was a political question. We're dealing this morning with a theological question. We're dealing with a very important question, as far as I'm concerned, even though the question was not asked with good intent. It wasn't asked out of sincerity. It's asked, again, uh, in hypocrisy. It's a hypothetical question asking it, ask in hypocrisy. Everybody knew the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So why are they asking this resurrection question? So the Lord said, you do error, not knowing the scriptures. Now, that gangrene doctrine of the resurrection being in the past, that, that's serious, you see. Over in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul starts writing about the resurrection, and this entire chapter is about that, it's 58 verses, it's all about the resurrection. Paul says, if Christ be preached among you that he's been risen from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection from the dead? There were those that Paul had preached the resurrection to who were saying there is no resurrection. How many of the says, oh, there was a resurrection, but it's in the past. Well, both of these are false doctrines. The resurrection is not in the past, and there is a resurrection. So the Lord Jesus Christ said, you do greatly error. Not knowing the scriptures. Now, in the scriptures, they had access to the 39 books of the Old Testament, although the Sadducees were really strong on those first five. But even those first five were okay. We'll see that in a minute, Lord willing. Did the Old Testament scriptures speak about a resurrection? I love the words of Job in Job chapter 19. Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He believed that redemption was important, and he believed there was a Redeemer, and he belonged to him. I know my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand at the latter day. And though the skin worm destroy this my body, yet in my flesh shall I, shall I see God. That sounds like the resurrection to me. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. He says, there shall be those who are asleep in the dust. Some, some shall come forth. Some shall come forth, it says, and everlasting life, and others shall come forth in everlasting shame and corruption. That sounds like the resurrection to me. Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 26, he says, Thy dead men, with my dead body, they shall arise. That sounds like the resurrection to me. Yes, the resurrection was taught in the Old Testament, here and there. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't think it was taught, especially in those first five books of the Bible. They didn't believe in angels. All you got to do is go back to the book of Genesis, and you'll find where God used angels multiple times. I don't know how they read the book of Genesis and didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in the Spirit, and they did not believe in the resurrection. The Lord says, you do err not knowing the Scriptures, 
nor the power of God. Now, when Paul came before a man by the name of Agrippa, he was glad to do that. You start reading about this account of Paul and Agrippa in the book of Acts. And he says to Agrippa, he says, I'm glad to be before you, Agrippa. He says, because I know thou believest the prophets. He says, I know you to be an expert in the Jewish customs. And I, be- I know you believe the prophets. Well, if Agrippa believed the prophets, that tells me that he was born of the Spirit of God. I know thou believest the prophets. He says, how, think you, how, think, uh, how do you think uh, that would be an incredible thing for God to raise the dead? Why would you think that to be so incredible for God to raise the dead? He says, so Sadducees, you do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. A lot of people don't understand the power of God. They believe in God. If you was to ask them the question, do you think God's got all power? They'd probably say yes, but then they'd make some statement about uh, something that would require the power of God, and you can see the doubt in it. If it happened to somebody like Abraham, it might happen to me too, right? We go to Genesis chapter 18, and the Lord has promised a child unto Abraham when he's 99 years old. And Abraham himself laughs in the beginning. And he said, oh, this, uh, I'll take the, the seed you promised me, th- you know, th- uh, through Hagar. He said, not so. He says, it's going to be from Sarah. And Sarah is a barren woman. She's old, well-stricken in age. And she's going to be 90 years old. And here's what the Lord said unto Abraham. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Abraham, are you doubting my power? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Agrippa, why would you think an incredible thing that God should raise the dead? You don't think he's got the power to raise the dead? If God calls a man to come into existence from the dust of the earth, I just got a, got a feeling he can bring those ashes and that dust and everything else back into the form of a spiritual body, don't you? I believe he can do it. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 says, The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Remember this, it's one of the, uh, one of the attributes of God that he is omnipotent, which means he has all power, period, over all authorities, over all principalities and powers and everything else in heaven and also on this earth. Moses had to be taught this lesson. In Numbers chapter 21, Moses, the people are complaining because they don't have, they think something to eat. And the Lord says, I'm going to feed them. And Moses comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, he says, am I going to have to slay all the cattle? Am I going to have to catch all the fish in the sea? There's a lot of people. It's over a million people here. Uh, it, it'll take every fish in the sea and all the cattle slain to feed these people. And the Lord says, Moses, is the hand of the Lord waxed short that it cannot save? Remember, Moses, I'm omnipotent. Remember, Abraham, I'm omnipotent. When the angel came to Mary to explain to her what was taking place in her life, she said unto Mary in Luke chapter 1, says, The power of the house shall overshadow thee, and that holy thing shall be born thee shall be called the Son of God. And thy cousin Elizabeth, who's already called barren, has also conceived and is carrying a child who shall be John the Baptist. And here the angel says this unto Mary, continuing on, says, With men these things are impossible, but all things are possible with God. That's what the Lord said to the rich young ruler. Because the disciples who were listening to this conversation between Christ and the rich young ruler, it was in their minds if a man had wealth, if a man was rich, 
then surely if a rich man or a wealthy man couldn't be saved, because here's what the Lord said about him. He said, how hardly shall a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to walk, uh, go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So their thinking is, if a rich man can't do it, how's a poor man going to do it? The Lord said, all things are possible with God. It's that simple. He says, these Sadducees right here, ye do error. You do err not knowing the scriptures. Now this ought to teach me and teach you the value of scripture. This ought to teach us all the benefits of scripture. This ought to teach us all the profitability of scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. I mean, this is God's message to you. It's God's message to me. I ought to want to know what it says. I ought to want to know what it means. I, I've committed my life uh, to, to trying to determine that very thing. I've, I've read this thing. I'm on my 43rd time going for, uh, from cover to cover in the Word of God. And that doesn't count all the other times I've read one thing or another and tried to study, et cetera, et cetera, because my goal is to know what God's Word means so I can teach you the truth so you can be free. You do err not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. All Scriptures give them inspiration of God and it's profitable. Every verse in this Bible is profitable. That doesn't mean I understand every verse. If I did, uh, I, I just quit reading, I suppose. Somebody says, now, Brother Lawrence says, now, you've been preaching for 50 years, right? Yeah. And you've read the Bible almost 43 times, cover to cover? Yes. That means you probably don't even have to read it anymore, right? Wrong. That means you don't even have to study it anymore, right? Wrong. <laughs> when a minister of the gospel, I don't care how long he preaches, quit studying God's word, his message has become stale. His message become old and stale. God forbid that would ever happen. But as he continues to study the word of God, that's how my wife has heard me. You've told me, I've told you this before. She's heard me in our lifetime since I've been preaching. She's been with me all the way. She didn't know she was marrying a preacher. She got married. I'm thanking God she didn't. I might have had to, I don't know what power of persuasion I'd had to use to convince her, it's okay, uh, we'll be all right. <laughs> she has heard me about 4,000 times. She still comes. <laughs> she still listens. She still comments. She still asks questions. Still gives sound advice. Thank God. I, I, I just got to say this in honor of the Lord. Every preacher doesn't have a good preacher's wife. They just do not. They don't have the commitment and the support that a preacher needs to have a, a good wife to understand him and walk by him. I remember a case in North Carolina 40 years ago where a man felt a call to preach and he was, uh, uh, people respected him, he had a, a esteemed him highly, but his wife totally opposed him. His wife totally opposed the old Baptist. His wife totally opposed the church, my friends, and she done everything in her power to keep him from going forth, and she succeeded. She wouldn't wash his shirts. She wouldn't cook his breakfast. She even laid down one time in front of his car uh, when he got ready to leave to go to church. Just laid right down in front of the front wheels. I'd have had to nudge her. I'd have had to make her think. I'd have had to make... <laughs> Lord, I don't know what I'd have done, but God gave me a jewel. <laughs> he gave me somebody who stuck with me through thick and thin. I won't say any more about any of that because I'm not here to preach her. I'm here to preach Jesus Christ. 
You do are not knowing the scriptures, know the power of God. I'm telling you, what world do you live in? What planet are you right, uh, living in today? Have you not noticed the sun, the moon, the stars that's in the universe? Have you not noticed the rain that comes down, the sun that shines? Have you not noticed the grass that grows and the flowers that bloom? Have you not noticed, my friends, uh, uh, the very uh, breath of air that God gives you to breathe every single day? If he just took the oxygen away, we'd all perish. You do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Oh, his power is so great, it can raise the dead. I'm telling you, it can. The Lord said, you do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And then he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither do they die, but they are as the angels of God. The Pharisees didn't believe in angels. The Lord here just tells them there's angels in heaven. See, angels are spirit beings that when they appeared on this earth, they took the appearance of human form. But they never married. And they never had children. <laughs> Little angels running around. <laughs> there's no such things as angels procreating. And so you can't take the things of this world and, and then uh, put them in that world and that's what the Lord is doing here. He says there as the angels of God in heaven that either marry nor give it in marriage and they don't die. There's not going to be any death in heaven. And let me tell you something else that's not going to be in heaven. Uh, there's not going to be any loneliness in heaven. I know when you live together with a spouse for 40 or 50 years and then one of them passes away, I haven't experienced that yet. Uh, but I, I know uh, there's got to be some loneliness, but you've got to be careful in a situation like that. I have seen uh, uh, men and women just rebound and get married immediately because of that loneliness factor and oftentimes make grave mistakes. Grave mistakes. Let me tell you something. There's not going to be any loneliness in heaven. Aren't you glad about that? There's going to be a multitude in heaven out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. There's going to be a great multitude that no man can number. There's going to be many, as Paul says in Romans 8, 29, uh, for he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to him. His son, they might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. I'm telling you, there's going to be many. No man can number them there. You're not going to have to worry about being lonely in heaven. It's not going to be crowded. It's going to be just right. The right amount of people, the right amount of space. Heaven's going to be filled with the family of God. You do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For there is the angel of God in heaven. They neither marry nor give it in marriage. That's for here in this life. That's to have order and, and stability in society here in this life. That's why God gave it to us. Why a man and a woman can live in a respectable relationship where a man and a woman can live in an honorable relationship in the sight of God and the sight of men. We live in a day and age where immorality is rampant, my friends, in this world, and especially in the United States of America. You're living in a nation where it now glorifies fornication and glorifies adultery and all kinds of immoral behavior and relationships in this world. Not going to be of that in heaven, I tell you that. And the Lord refers them, Sadducees, to Exodus, fifth, second book of the five of Moses, to the second uh, book, to the third chapter of Exodus, 
And he says, have you not read? This is where Moses, 80 years of age, on the backside of a desert, there's a bush that's burning, and an angel speaks unto him, angel, tells him to take his shoes off his feet for his ground, he stands on his holy ground, and Moses turned around, and when God saw Moses do this, here's what God said. God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. See, they've been dead a long time. He didn't say, I was. He says, I am now. I'm the God of Abraham. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were living right then, just not on this earth. He says, for God is not the God of the dead. But he's the God of the living. He proved from that one experience that there's going to be a resurrection. When God loved you before time began, he loved you entirely. He loved you in body and in soul and in spirit. And when Jesus died on Calvary, he didn't die just to save your soul and your spirit. He died to save the entirety of you, your body, your soul, and your spirit. When you die, your soul and spirit depart to be with the Lord. The Lord knows where your body is at. I was blessed to be in a funeral this last Tuesday with a dear sister who lived to be 100 over in Seymour, Tennessee, right outside of Pigeon Forge. I've known her for a long time. It was just a joy and delight to go and be over there and participate. She's just one of the sweetest people I've ever known. Just a great example of what a disciple's all about. We put her body down into the grave, but her soul and spirit was in glory. But the Lord knows where her body's at and the body of all his saints. The Lord comes back again. He's going to get the bodies out of the graves. They're going to be reunited with the soul and the spirit and taken home to be with the Lord. You do err, you Sadducees, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. For God is not the God of the dead. He's a God of the living. And from that moment forward, no man durst ask him another question.